Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you are joining us. This is part two of a message from the book of Joel. I've entitled the message, When Things Get Really, Really Bad. You ever have things go really, really bad in your life? What are you supposed to do when things go really, really bad? Well, this is what Peter says as we look at the minor prophet of Joel. 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, as you look at this passage of Scripture, it's very clear that the day of the Lord is talking about the end of time, talking about God's judgment falling upon the earth, coming as a thief in the night, not expected, not anticipated, and uh, talking about the heavens shall give way to a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, as we look at the book of Joel, Joel talks about this day of the Lord, and it's a really, really bad time. And so when things get really, really bad, the application for us is going to be, when things get really bad in my life, how should I respond? And now Joel is writing to his people, and he begins by saying, hear you elders. And he's talking about the leaders within Judah. He says, I want you to listen, all who live in the land, and he's going to set up a scenario where they've experienced something, a plague of locusts. And he says, has anything like this to this degree, ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? And then he says, tell this to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locust hath eaten. And what the great locust hath left, the young locust hath eaten. What the young locust hath left, the other locust hath eaten. And so here we see, that the locusts come in, and it's compared to the day of the Lord, God's judgment upon his people, and nothing is going to be left behind. Verses 5 to 7 of chapter number 1, he says, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. So Joel is dealing with a group of people who are addicted, right? Addicted to alcohol in this case. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Well, are you drinkers of wine? Well, because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. What is happening? Joel is talking about this swarm of locusts that is attacking their vineyards, attacking their crops, so they can no longer produce wine. He says, a nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste many vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it away leaving their branches white. And so these locusts are so infesting the land that it's not just taking the fruit, it's taking the very bark right off the trees, and you look out, all you can see is white. Joel is referring to the day of the Lord and the judgment that is falling. So what are we supposed to do when we find ourselves in this situation? Now, I got to admit, this is probably not going to be one of my most popular messages because nobody likes to talk about the day of the Lord the judgment of God. But there's areas of our lives that God will awaken us to. As we see this, this is a foreshadowing. The Old Testament speaks of the judgment for sin. 
whether individual or national sin. And it's the, the advent of Christ is, is a foreshadow of Christ coming back the second time to judge the world for rejecting the gospel. So let's look at this point by point, okay? First of all, as you look at the day of the Lord, it's a wake-up call. It's an opportunity for us to grieve what we have lost. So as we drop down to verse number 8 through 12, Joel says, more like a virgin who has lost his betrothed of the youth. In other words, we have a virgin who's about to get married. Before she gets married, her husband-to-be passes away. And so grieve what you have lost. So yesterday we started talking about the four types of loss we can experience. One would be the loss of my love. That's what this mourning like a virgin in sackcloth and grieving for the betrothed of her youth. There's also a loss of my faith. We spent a lot of time talking about that yesterday. And the loss of our faith is a reason we should mourn. Have you ever thought about that? So many times we think about grieving over our sins that we have committed. Well, how about grieving over the fact that you are lacking faith? Without faith, it isn't possible to believe in God, right? You have to have that confidence that God exists. So when we are doubting in our faith, that is sinning against God. So we can lose our faith by grieving the Spirit of God. And there's a third loss that we can grieve over. And Joel gets into this in verse number 10, the loss of my wealth. The fields are ruined. Joel says the ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Despair you farmers, he says. Well, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate and the palm and the apple trees. All the trees of the field are dried up. Now, when you hear what is happening in the days of Joel, one of the temptations that Satan uses is money. People from India, from Africa, from America, all over the world have fallen into this temptation because of the love of money. People have erred from the faith in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through many, many sorrows. How do you respond when you lose your money, when you lose your possessions? Do you feel ruined? Do you feel undone? That indicates that that was your idol. That was your God. Now, listen, I know that we need money, but we are never told to love money. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money and wealth is nothing more than a tool. It's a tool for us to glorify God. It's a tool for us to meet our expenses, to take care of our bills, to provide. It's never meant to be worshipped. Maybe to help us understand this, uh, can you imagine you hire a carpenter and you want to put an addition on your house and, and he comes and, uh, and as he's building this addition, you notice every day he does something very strange. As he begins his day, he takes his hammer and he takes it out of his belt and he starts kissing it and, and hugging it. 
And then he puts that hammer down and, and then he goes over to a circular saw and he picks up his circular saw and he embraces it. He says, oh, I love you, my circular saw. And then he goes over to his benches that he brought, his saw horses, and he picks them up and he starts hugging on them. And then, then he gets his tape measure out and he opens a little bit and says, oh, how I love my tape measure. And we would think, well, that guy has lost it. He is worshiping his tools. He is loving his tools. Tools were never meant to be worshiped, never meant to be loved. That is just as insidious as somebody worshiping and loving wealth. The love of money is the root of all kind of evil. Paul says those who covet it have erred from the faith. You can't love wealth and God at the same time. Paul goes so far to say that you have been pierced with many sorrows. You see, in Joel's day, they had the same problem that we have. They loved their vineyards, and they loved their crops, and they loved their wonderful opportunity to produce olive oil through wonderful olive trees. These farmers were able to do amazing things. They could grow wheat and barley, and and all of a sudden, all of their wealth has been destroyed. Everything is dried up because of the locusts. When you lose your wealth, cry out to God. There's something else that you can lose. You can lose your loved one. You can lose your faith. You can lose your wealth. You can also lose your joy. Joel looked out, and because of this locust, he discovered that the day of the Lord had robbed the people of their joy. He says, surely the people's joy has been withered away. They were emotionally withered, physically withered. Their health was gone, and their joy was gone. So we've learned when things get really, really bad, and I have lost so many things, my wealth, my health, all that I think is important in my life, it is at that point that we should grieve, repent, turn from our sins. There's something else that we should do. Not only do we grieve over what we've lost and and we turn to the Lord, but we also spend a few minutes and we pray and we cry out to the Lord. Now look what Joel says. He says, get the elders all together, all who live in the land that belong to the house of the Lord, cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. This reminds me of what Jesus said. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Maybe as you seek the Lord, you're going to ask the Lord to also give you some direction and some meaning as to what you're experiencing. And maybe this is a wake-up call. You know, many years ago, I learned to trust the Lord with my finances. And I remember we were very poor as a couple when we first got married, but we made a commitment that we would not go into debt for our education. And I was getting ready to go into seminary. I had finished my bachelor's degree, and my wife was finishing up her undergrad degree when we got married. And we were so focused on the fact that we need to finish school, but we didn't want to go in debt for our education. So we just started praying and praying and sacrificing and sacrificing and asking the Lord to provide. And I remember as a young seminarian thinking that I should be tithe-exempt. In other words, because I am preparing for ministry, I'm volunteering, I was serving as a, as a youth pastor, uh, not being compensated for that, I was just doing that. 
uh, kind of on the side. I was working full-time job, going to school full-time, uh, trying to work with students. And, uh, and so my thought was, because of my situation, I should be tithe-exempt. I mean, I'm paying my own education. And so obviously, tithing is not for young seminarians uh, who don't have two nickels that they can rub together. Uh, so in my mind, I went down that path. But then uh, the Lord began to convict me. I said, man, how are you going to teach people to trust the Lord with your finances, even when things are hard? And so I'm glad that I learned the value of giving when I didn't have a whole lot of money, right? Because it's easier to give a dollar if you only have 10 than it is to give a thousand if you have, you know, 10,000. So when we think about giving, God taught me this lesson very young. You know, I've been able for the last 34 years to trust God for everything. I remember when we started our church, my wife and I had set some money aside and we were saving to buy a home and we just never felt that we, were, we should buy a home uh, in our first ministry because we didn't feel like we were going to be there till death do us part. Uh, we felt like that was a training time for us and the Lord was going to move us on. And so we spent eight years at our first church and, and then the Lord did move us on. So we had saved a good little sum of money and, uh, and had set that aside and we we're going to use that as a down payment to buy a house. And so we moved to the uh, Hampton Roads area. And as we moved to the Hampton Roads area, we, we have no congregation, no money, no place to live, but God caused us to start a church. And so uh, how are we going to fund this church in the very early days? Well, I told my wife as we prayed about this together as a couple, I said, well, why don't we take this money that we have set aside for a deposit to buy a house? Uh, why don't we use that money to start a church? And I'm so thankful that she was like 100% behind it. And our rationale was this. You know, you can, you can buy a house anytime, but you can't start a church anytime. And so we both trusted the Lord. And, and you know, an amazing thing happened. This is how God provides. Within seven months of moving to this area, my wife and I were able to buy our first home. I don't know how that happened. It doesn't make sense. I mean, our money that we had set aside for the deposit, uh, down payment on the house, uh, was invested in the church. How did that all work out? Well, God worked in little ways to bring that money in and to allow us to buy our very first home seven months after moving here. You see, uh, God has promised that he will take care of the needs of those who love him. Seek the Lord with all your heart, and you'll discover that he will provide for you if you put him first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All these things that we worry about, God takes care of. So when things get really, really, really bad, first thing we do is we grieve. The second thing is we, we go and we, we gather with others. Joel says, put on sackcloth, you priest, and, and mourn and wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend a night in sackcloth. You who minister before the Lord, for the grain offerings and for the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Verse 14, declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Now, I want to spend just a moment speaking on fasting, praying and fasting. Is there something in your life that is a stronghold that you're having trouble breaking through? Maybe there's a uh, somebody listening to me, and, and they're addicted to pornography, and they can't 
seem to shake loose of that. They try to pray about it. They have others trying to pray with them. Maybe they're even going through some kind of a support group, and it seems like they are not getting traction. Have you ever considered fasting for God to release you from that stronghold? You know, I had a time in my life where I had trouble telling the truth. And it wasn't that I was telling bold-faced lies just for the sake of telling bold-faced lies. I discovered that people are very gullible. And so I would tell stories just to get the charge out of it, of seeing if people would believe what I had to say. Well, it became habit-forming. And along with that, being sarcastic was tied in with that. And these two things were killing me, right? And I just couldn't even help myself. I automatically went to this default position of being sarcastic or telling these wonderful stories that had no truth in them whatsoever. God began to convict me of that. I read in Revelation chapter 21 that all liars shall have their place in the lake of fire that burneth forever and ever, and this is the second death. And I learned that um, as a follower of Christ, I had to have victory over deception, victory over sarcasm. And so I spent some time praying and fasting. I said, Lord, would you take this stronghold? Would you take this weakness in my life and turn it into a strength? And you know what the Lord did? He delivered me from that. I did a seven-day fast, and uh, I drank nothing but water for seven days. And every time that I would be eating, instead of eating, I'd get a glass of water and pray and search God's Word. It set me free. Look at what David says in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God, under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from the Mount of Misar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Day by day, the Lord directs me with His love. At night, he sings his song over me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemies? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Oh, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. You see, as you gather with others and worship Him, you discover that mourning can turn into rejoicing. And then, number three, you pray for meaning. Summon the elders, Joel says, and cry out to the Lord. And then as you cry out the Lord, Jesus said, whatever you ask will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. As you cry out to the Lord, He will give you meaning and understanding. You won't have an entire picture as to everything that God has done, but God will reveal to you exactly why you have gone through what you're going through. And then repent. Repent of complacency. Look what Joel says. Joel chapter 2. He says, Now even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting and weeping and mourning. And then he says, rend your heart, not your garments. In other words, don't just go through the motions of repentance. Don't just put on sackcloth and ashes. He says, rend your heart. In other words, allow your heart to be torn out of brokenness over your sin. Return to your Lord. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Don't you love that verse? That verse says that God regrets that he had to put you through calamity. He wished he didn't have to do it, but it was the only way to get your attention. And who knows, says Joel, he may return and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. You see, as we repent of our complacency, and I believe that's probably the sin of the American churches is we're half-hearted. We're the Laodicean Christian, lukewarm Christian. Oh, Lord, we repent of our complacency today. And then last, we trust God to restore. Trust that he can restore and repay. Look what Joel 2.25 says. I will repay you for the years that the locust hath eaten. That great locust and the young locust and the other locust and the locust swarm and my great army that I sent among you. Don't you love that? God makes it very clear. Oh, you have lost some things along the way. You've lost some loved ones. You've even lost your faith from time to time. You become dismayed. You become set back. But now that you've mourned and now that you've repented, trust God to restore. He will restore. Look at verse 28, Joel chapter 2. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors, whom call upon the Lord. Oh, this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost as the Spirit of God fell and the church began. And so we are recipients of restoration all because of what God has done for us. In Joel chapter 3, it says, There be multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now that's a prophetic verse there, a verse of judgment. But the application for us is this, is that we have an opportunity to make a decision, to be committed to Christ, completely committed to Him. So here, as we wrap up our time together, I want you to to stay connected with the body of Christ, to continue to grow in your faith. You know what grieves my heart? There's a lot of Christians who aren't connected with a good Bible-believing church, or they're very half-hearted in their connection with 
the local church. Listen, God wants you in a church, serving, giving, and worshiping with other believers. So why not this Sunday? Make it part of your day to go and worship. We'd love to have you at Hickory Ridge Community Church. We have service times at 9 or 1045 every single Sunday. Why don't you come and worship with us? Worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now on July 2nd, we're having one worship service at Northwest River Park. July 2nd, Sunday, 10 o'clock a.m., one service, Northwest Park, right in Chesapeake, on the Hickory section of Chesapeake. I want to personally invite you to come and worship with us on that Sunday. We're going to have one service out in the park. Our worship team is going to be out there. Just bring a chair with you. And at the end of the service, you are welcome to join us for a cookout. We're going to play cornhole and, and some other games. I hope to see you July the 2nd, Northwest River Park, 10 a.m., Worship with Hickory Ridge Community Church, okay? Well, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or if I can help you with anything, 252-267-2365 is my number. 252-267-2365. You can text me or you can call me and I'll get back to you just as soon as I can. Well, God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.